I'm number 90. Psalm number 90. We have just finished book 3 of the Psalms. I don't know if your Bible divides them that way, but the Jews have them in uh, different books, five different books. We have just finished book 3. We are now beginning with book 4. And each one of these books, these collections of Psalms, have their own particular flavor uh, you may recall that the one that we've just finished, many, many of the Psalms had something to do with the uh, with Asaph. You recall the inscription mentioned Asaph, who was David's song leader. He was the one in charge of the Levites, the singers at the tabernacle. Uh, others mentions the sons of Korah, who also were Levites that were singers. And then the last two of that book was uh, He-Man. You remember O He-Man? I think it's a great name. Or a guy, I wish they'd call me He-Man. Uh, Haman actually would be how the Jews uh, pronounce it. But there was a inscription that mentioned him. And then his brother, Ethan, uh, is the one mentioned in the inscription of the very last psalm of book 3. So tonight we start into book 4. In each one of these psalms, uh, it's interesting that you would think after a while you'd be just repeating yourself over and over again. And there are a lot of repetitions to be found in the Psalms, but what is interesting is that each one of them have sort of their own personality, and they have their own story to tell, much like songs, and that's what they are. Uh, it's hard to pick out a favorite, sort of like asking you which is your favorite child. Well, it just depends on which day you're asking me, right? Uh, what, what's happened today? But uh, each one of them are interesting in their own way. It is ascribed, you'll notice, the inscription says it's a psalm or a prayer of Moses, the man of God. I have my doubts as to whether, and keep in mind that the inscriptions are not inspired. Those have been added somewhere along the line by somebody for some purpose, and uh, they're not always reliable, and tonight I don't think this was actually written by Moses. Um, I'll, I'll mention that as we go as to why I don't think that. But just remember that the inscriptions are not inspired. The Psalms are, but not the inscriptions. So they have been added by somebody who may have been right or may have been wrong. There are some very strange things that are being uttered in this psalm about man's life on the natural realm. And very unsatisfying. The brevity of that life, the sadness of that life. And it seems that what we find in Psalm number 90 tends to contradict what we find in other Psalms. Uh, for instance, Psalm number 23. Everybody know Psalm 23rd Psalm? How does it end? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, it just ends in a wonderful way, speaking of the comfort of, of God and the joy of being his sheep, uh, and so forth. And yet, you're not going to find anything like that in this psalm. It, it is very somber. It's very solemn. Uh, but sometimes, the Bible speaks of what we would call, or what it calls, life under the sun. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is a book that is written talking about man's life under the sun. And you mean, what, what do you mean by under the sun? I mean, we all live under the sun, but we're talking about man's life on the purely natural, physical level. If you took away the spiritual side of man, here's what you're left with. Man's life under the sun. Do you realize that in Ecclesiastes, 27 times Solomon speaks of man under the sun. And it's very frustrating. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. In other words, this is hopeless, this is useless. What's the, what's the point? It, we're going nowhere. We're spinning our wheels. There's no point to life. Why don't I just go ahead and slip my wrist and get it over with? You know, that's sort of how you want to act once you've studied Ecclesiastes. But remember what Solomon is doing is pointing out to us that man's life purely on the natural level is very puzzling. Very strange, very uncertain, very unsatisfying. That if you're trying to find it here, in this life, 
whatever it is. Isn't there a country song out now? She's got whatever it is. Is that right? Anybody? Am I the only one ever listens to country? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, she's got where, whatever it is. Well, whatever it is. It, meaning that which is going to satisfy you. That which is going to give you joy and satisfaction in life. You're never going to find it here in life under the sun. Keep that in mind as we proceed. All right? Let's look. We're going to break this psalm up into several sections. In the first section, where it will be in the first two verses, a section that deals with the eternality and the immutability of God. And that will be found in verses 1 and 2. There you go. You'll notice that this is a section that is dealing with the permanency of God, the eternalness of God, that you have been there always for your people before I ever came along. You ever thought about that? Before you came along, God was already here. That He wasn't born like you. He didn't have a generation like you. That your God is the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your God is David's God. Your God is the God of Peter and Paul in the New Testament. Uh, He didn't come upon the scene when you came upon the scene. You're living with some contemporaries. God was already here. He's always been there. And notice that it speaks of the fact that God has always been our dwelling place in all generations. It has the tone of what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17, that in Him we live and move and have our being. That we live in the sphere, in the atmosphere of God Almighty. That's a, and that, and he's always been here from the first time we can remember. God was already there. In fact, before there was a creation, and you'll notice in verse two, that's what he's emphasizing here. We think of mountains as being about the most permanent things that are, right? I mean, when we say something as solid as a mountain, as permanent as a mountain, you just can't hardly get, for, from our perspective, we know the mountains changed and so forth, came upon the scene, but from our perspective, a mountain is about as certain and solid and steadfast as you can get. But notice here in verse 2, before there ever was such a thing as mountains, before there was a world, you were already there and you were already God. And notice how the eternality of God is expressed. You know what I mean by eternality? When we say that God is an eternal being, we don't just mean that He has a lot of time. We mean that God lives outside of time. Suppose you were a goldfish in a goldfish bowl that was mirror-plated on the inside of the bowl. You know what I mean? Suppose the inside of your fish bowl was a mirror, and you're a fish inside that goldfish bowl. And you're swimming around and round and round and round. That's about all you can do, swim around. And all you can see is inside that bowl. You have no sense that there is actually something outside the bowl. Well, in some ways, we're like that goldfish. You and I are time-bounded creatures. You know what I mean by that? We are bound by time. You say, I want to get from now to tomorrow. The only way that you can get from now till tomorrow is to exist through all the little slices of time between now and tomorrow. As much as we sometimes would like to do time travel, just snap our fingers and it be tomorrow, or in my case, snap my fingers and it be yesterday, we can't do that. We are bound. We are constricted by time. We can't break free from it. God, however, and so you see, we're sort of like the fish inside the fishbowl. We are bound by time. God is living outside of time. There are no time limitations on God. And the only way that we can possibly express that is using terms like at the end of verse 2 here, even from everlasting to everlasting. That's as close as we can get. To us, it just seems like that God has unlimited time in Truth, God, there is no such thing as time. 
for God. All time is present before him. He does not have a past. He doesn't have a future. God lives in the present. You and I don't live in the present. You realize that? We think we do. Live for the moment. But the moment, this moment, the moment I snap my fingers is no longer that moment. It's past. There's a moment coming. There's a moment that's past. But you can't live in the present. You understand? God, on the other hand, has no past, has no future. He is the I am God. All things are present before Him. All time is present before Him. I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit here, but I want to try to impress you with the awesomeness of God. We watch life like a movie. Frame by frame. Instant by instant. When you go to a movie theater, to you what looks like continuous action is actually a series of still photographs. If we make those still photographs projected up there on the screen, if they'll go faster than about 30 frames per second, your eye is fooled into seeing that as continuous action. It looks like to you continuous movement. But in actuality, if you slowed it down, you'd see that these are individual shots, individual frames. And that's sort of like the way we see life, a frame at a time. It's going real fast, but it's a frame at a time. Suppose instead we went to a movie theater that instead of having one screen had a million screens. And on each of those screens is projected one frame out of the movie. So that in... One glance, you see the entire movie. What would take you and I an hour and a half to sit there through and want our money back when it's over, what would take us an hour and a half to see frame by frame, if they were all projected, all the frames in the movie projected up there at the same time, we could take one glance and we'd see it all. That's how God exists. All time is present in front of Him. So God, the eternal, unchangeable, immutable God, and you and me, the very opposite. Look at the next section here in verses 3 through 6. God turns us, however, to destruction. God never dies, never ceases to be, never ceases to exist. We, on the other hand, in verse 3, He says, Return, ye children of men. Return to what? The word man here is the word Adam, Adam, the name of the first man. Do you know why they named Adam, Adam? What does Adam mean? Dirt. He was made from dirt. And so when God says, return, man, what he's saying is, return to the dirt. Now, when did God say that? At the beginning of the Bible... From dust you came to dust you're going to return. What had happened that God said that? He disobeyed God. In other words, that was the consequence of the curse that God put upon man, that your dirt, that's what I made you from, you're going to go back to dirt. And so notice this text is speaking of that process that God has said to man, return thou son of man, return back where you came from. Go back to dirt. He says that a thousand years, in verse 4, in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. A thousand of our years are like one day to God. So if a thousand of our years is like one day to God, how much, how many of our years would be like a year to God? A year's, you know, pretty good. That's not short. Day's pretty short. But suppose you have a year. That's 365,000 of our days. And if his life, if you live 70 years, then what is your lifespan like in, well, that's 25 million days? Do you understand the incongruity? God, on the other hand, has no time limitation at all. You, on the other hand, are running out. 
Your time is expiring. It's like an egg timer. The sands of time are sinking, we sing. Your time is running out. It's sudden death, folks. God's got all the time in the world. In fact, time doesn't even have any bounds on God. Our time is quickly, quickly expiring. Notice the metaphors that are being used to illustrate that fact of what life is like. Now, I'm speaking as an old man. I don't think I'm an old man, but some of these guys over here think I'm an old man. It seems like yesterday when I was sitting over there at your age, now I'm standing up here at my age. And when you stand at my age, you have a little bit different perspective on how quickly life has passed. It just seems amazing that I was your age just yesterday. What happened? It just went. Before I know it, I'm married. Before I know it, I've got kids. Before I know it, my kids are grown and gone. Before I know it, well, I'm like I am today. Over the hill. Okay? Notice the way that is expressed here. Three metaphors that God uses to explain that. In verse 5, it's like being swept away in a flood. You ever seen what a flood does? When a flood, the river gets out of the bank and it just sweeps houses. You ever seen some of the pictures of the floods with the houses floating down the river? The house was there. It was permanent. It looked like to us it'd be there forever. And then the flood hit it and just carried it right away. That's the first metaphor. That our time, our life, is like a flood hit us, and we think we're something. We think we're permanent. We think we're going to be here forever. Everybody always remember us, and we don't know that the flood of time sweeps over us and just sweeps us away like we never were even here. You say, I just know everybody's going to miss me when I'm gone. I, I mean, the world just can't go on if I'm not in it, right? And that's the way you feel? I mean, how could the world be happy without me? Trust me, they'll get over it. They'll get over it quickly. They'll get over it so quickly, it would be very humbling to know how quickly they'll get over it. How quickly the world will just keep right on going because the flood of time just sweeps away all trace of you. And you're remembered in somebody's uh, photographs in the box up in the closet. If they look on the internet and the genealogical records, maybe they'll find your name. But all trace of you has disappeared. That's the first metaphor. Second metaphor is in verse 5, right in the middle. He says, they are like asleep. And what he's talking about is a dream. I was telling somebody I had this crazy dream uh, setting. This was Saturday night. I have strange dreams on Saturday night, getting ready for Sunday morning. And uh, I'm, I'm, I, where this came from, I have no idea. I, I'm, I'm sitting in a house, and I'm looking out the window, and there's these huge shapes going by. And I'm saying, what is that? Is that Godzilla? What is this? You know, it's like a monster. And I get up. And I go look outside, and it's a herd of elephants going by my house. I have no clue. But it seemed so real till I woke up. You ever had those dreams? Seems so real. And then you wake up, and it's just an illusion. It's just transitory. It was here, and that's gone. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's what your life is like. It's like a dream. And one of these days, you're going to wake up, and it's gone. It seemed so real. It seemed like it was going to last forever. And you wake up and it's gone. And then there's a third metaphor found in that same verse. They are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourishes, groweth up. In the evening it's cut down and it withered. I'm, I've just got through mowing my grass today. Tried to get the grass mowed before I leave for Mexico because it'll be head high by the time I get home if I don't. And uh, some of that grass was flowering budding, and I just mowed it down. Up it came. I just mowed about a week ago. Came up, flourished, flowered, and then I mowed it down. That's you. You sprout, you're born, you flower, you flourish, you mature, and then you're cut down. Death. And so notice these three illustrations of how brief, how illusory your life is in this world. Well, what has caused this? What is the explanation? That's now we get to the next section dealing in verses 7 
down through verse 10, what in the world has brought about this situation where man's life is so brief, so illusory, so transient? What is it? Well, some folks would say it's biology. You know, we got this problem with us that we're continually dying. The moment we're born, we start dying. I'm told that the human body sheds every cell in it every seven years, sometimes more than that. Fast-growing cells like your hair and stuff like that get shed much faster. But at the end of seven years, you have shed every cell that was alive seven years ago has died. In fact, I heard a guy plead not guilty before a judge on a crime that had been done more than seven years ago because he's saying to the judge, that wasn't me, that was the old me. Didn't The judge didn't buy it, sent him to prison for the rest of his seven-year shedding of cells. But in other words, there's this problem. We've got this biology, and some would say that's the problem. Others would say, no, that's a result of physics. There is this thing called the second law of thermodynamics. Y'all familiar with that? Entropy increase, it's called the increase of disorderness in a closed system. And it's the idea that everything is decaying. Everything's breaking down. It's not coming together and being built up. It's breaking down. Give it enough time and it falls apart. Things at my house don't fall together. They fall apart. I don't know how it works at your house. They fall apart over time. And so we could say, well, let's blame it on biology or let's blame it on physics. But the Word of God gives us another reason for our mortality. You'll see it down here starting in verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and by your wrath. The reason we die is because God is angry with us. God has placed us under that curse. Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. Well, why is He angry with us? Verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquity before thee. In other words, we say, well, you know, why is it that this thing called death rules us? Why are we subject to it? What is the cause of this thing called death? The root cause is this other thing called sin. The wages of sin is death. You do realize that you were not created, even in an innocent state, even Adam and Eve in the garden weren't immortal. There's only one immortal being in the universe. That's God. The only undying, self-existent being in the universe. But you were made, even though you were made mortal, man originally, you were not made, he was not made to die. Because there was in the midst of that garden a tree. A tree that bore or would bear fruit. And the man who eats of that fruit lives forever. In other words, the reason man, although he was mortal, all finite creatures are, would never die, is because there's a never-ending supply of life in that garden. And when man sinned, he was cut off from that supply of life. And now his mortality takes over and he dies. Never forget, the reason for sickness, the reason for sin, sorrow, death, all points back to sin. There's this thing called sin, and its wages are, is death. It separates us from the God who is the source of our life. Remember, they were driven out east of Eden, the cherubim with the sword standing in the way, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful, cursed condition. And so we live our lives under the curse. You're cursed. I'm cursed. We're under a curse. Our bodies are breaking down. We're dying. If the Lord tarries, we're going to return to the dust from which we're taken. Your life's going to end. On that happy note, we'll close. Pretty sad story, isn't it? Frustrating life under the sun. You see what I'm talking about? But that's reality. That's where our lives are heading. We live our lives without meaning, under the sun, 
In verse 9, he says, All our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. At the end of the day, you know somebody tells you a funny story. Hardly a day goes by, if you're out in the workplace, I assume. Well, it depends on who you're working with, I guess. Somebody tells us tells a story. I got a hundred of them. I share with you. Keep boring you to tears with some of my stories. But at the end of the day, you may remember it, you may not. By tomorrow, you probably forgot it. That's what he's saying. Our life is like that. It's like a tale that somebody tells, and tomorrow we can't even remember it. We knew it today. Tomorrow, it's past. It's gone. Our lifespan, he says down here in verse 10, three score years and ten. How many is in a score? Twenty years in a score. So if you got three score, how many you got? Sixty, three score and ten, seventy. Now I told you from the beginning, I'm doubtful that Moses wrote this, and this is one of the clues as to why. How long did Moses live? 120 years. Joshua followed Aaron 110 years. Lifespans were long in Moses' day. So this gives a clue, at least to me, that this was probably written later when the lifespan of man was reduced to about what it is today. Three score and ten. Seventy years. That would be the normal lifespan of a man. If no folly be found, he doesn't die in war, doesn't die in battle, doesn't die in disease. By 70 years of age, he's pretty much worn out. And if, by some reason, you can increase it another 10 years, notice the text mentions that. If you can increase it to 80 years, you've gone from age 70 to 80. What have you really done? Is age 70 to 80 the span, the time of life that you're really looking forward to? <laughs> Everybody say, man, I just can't wait till I'm 70. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to live it up. No. No. Uh-uh. In fact, what usually happens at age 70 to 80, the body then begins to accelerate its breakdown. Parts that used to work don't work anymore. The working parts don't work that well anymore. Everything, the wheels are coming off. And so if you manage to make it from 70 to 80, what have you really accomplished in the end? You've just increased 10 years of misery. And so (laughs) you might as well just die young, you see. Do you understand the reasoning here? And can you argue with this? Anybody got to, you say, well, not me. I'm not going to get old. You kidding yourself? Not me, I'm not going to wear out. Some of us can delay it. Some of us can prolong it. There's folks, we, we have almost a youth cult in our culture today. Anything we can possibly do to look younger, feel younger. But at the end of the day, I remember one of the, there's an old wrinkled rock star I saw on somebody's show the other day and they asked him how old he was. He said, I'm so old. That when I was born, the dead, the dead Sea was just sick. <laughs> That's old. <laughs> oh. It's coming, folks. You can put it off. You can try to delay it. But you cannot inevitably postpone it. That's life under the sun. We are going to fly away. Verse 10, at the end they be get their strength. Yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow. That's a good day. You got labor and sorrow. That's the day you can get out of bed. You got labor and sorrow. That's in that 70 to 80 year frame. And it is soon cut off and we fly away. The book of Ecclesiastes said, we're going to die and the body's going to return to the earth and the soul to God who gave it. We're going to fly away. Anybody remember that old song? Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Well, this is where it gets it, right here. We're going to fly away. Life will be over. The bond between soul and body severed forever. All right. Everybody like this a happy psalm? This is not exactly one of those get up and clap and shout songs, is it? What is the remedy? 
If this is what life is on this level, then how can there possibly be something that will solve this terrible problem, this thing called mortality, this thing called death, this thing called a curse? What's, what's the remedy? I want you to realize, and we've seen this several times in studying the Psalms, that the Old Testament saint didn't have all the answers. I, I mentioned Conrad Merle up in St. Louis a couple of months ago. Uh, said he didn't think that the Old Testament saint had the knowledge of what we would call a life after this life. I'm not so sure he's he's completely right, but they certainly didn't emphasize it. They're not saying, well, this life is pits, but there's another life coming that's going to be real good. You, you never see them talking in those terms. You do see hints here and there that they realized that there was going to be a day of resurrection. But basically... Under the law of Moses, you lived on in your children. That's why your name was never to be erased from Israel. You lived on in your inheritance, your property. The property was never to leave your family. In other words, yeah, there's a sense in which you live on, but not in the sense that we want to think about. Let's remember that the Old Testament saint is putting the pieces together. He doesn't even have all the pieces. There's a lot of Scripture that has not yet been written when this was written. You say, well, doesn't Daniel say something about our dead bodies will rise? But Daniel wasn't written when this was written. That revelation had not yet been given. It's like putting a picture puzzle together and you don't have all the pieces. You ever have one of those frustrating times? you got about half the pieces and you're trying to put it together, and you might get a piece or two to fit, but you have no clue how what the thing's supposed to look like. You don't know what you're working towards, and you don't even have all the pieces there. The Old Testament saint was like that. He couldn't tell you that one day God's going to bring an answer to this thing called the curse, and He's going to do it through a man named Jesus Christ, His Son, born of a virgin, but the Son of God, who's going to go to a cross and take that curse upon himself. He, he couldn't tell you all of that. He got bits and pieces of it. He knows a little of the story, but he doesn't know the whole story. It took Jesus coming. That's sort of like the picture on the front of the box of the picture puzzle. Jesus showed us what the whole picture looked like. And all of a sudden, all of those pieces from the Old Testament fall together. Now I see where this goes. Now I see. Now I see the whole story. But till then, there's just bits and pieces. But even working with just bits and pieces, there's still a few deductions. There's some reasoning going on with the Old Testament saint. He does know a few things. Let me share those with you in this closing section, starting in verse 11. In verse 11... He says, we need to know something. We need to know the power of your wrath. Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. As much as you ought to fear God, that is how powerful, how strong His wrath is. And you need to know His wrath. Now, let me try to say that the word know oftentimes means more than just knowing about something. It means to experience something. Uh, let me give an example. To know the tensile strength of a rope. Let's say we got us a rope. And you know, we go out here, we put Josh, put it around Josh's neck, take it out here under a tree and pull it up. Here's Josh hanging there, dying, kicking. We know that the tensile strength of that rope is stronger than Josh's weight. Stronger. Strong rope. But we still don't know how strong it is, do we? All we know is Josh didn't put it to its test. In other words, to know the tensile strength of a rope or a cable means you've got to break it. And so notice that here the idea is is that man needs to know what he's up against. He needs to realize the God he has sinned against. He needs to realize the infinite nature of God's wrath. If he's ever going to learn wisdom, he first needs to learn that. What he's saying is, there's no way out. You're not going to get yourself out of this mess. You're not going to be the answer to this thing, life under the sun. And so that's the first clue. 
The second clue in verse 12 is to realize your mortality, is to realize the fact that you're not going to make it out of this life alive. Notice he says, teach you to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You need to know that your days are numbered, and guess what? The number is running out. We say somebody dies, their number's up. Right? What's your number? How many days you got left? I like to walk. And walking in my neighborhood, one of the enjoyable things is watching the colors turn in the fall, the leaves. The thought hit me last fall. I wonder how many more of these changes of seasons I'm going to see. I mean, just be reasonable. Not that many. Could this be the last one I ever see? Could be. I have no guarantee. All I know is the number of seasons changing is getting smaller and smaller. Every day I rise, is this my last day? I don't know. Could be. I need to understand that time is running out. Time is short. Time is not short for God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. I'm not God. My time is quickly passing. I need to do some business right now. I don't have time to wait. I need to number my days. And then notice starting in verse 13, the recognition that if there is a remedy to this problem, it's going to be found in God. It's not going to be found in the one dying. It's not going to be found in the one under the curse. Did you notice as we went through this psalm that it is God doing this to man? Did you did you pick up on that? Let me point out to you in verse 3. Thou turnest man to destruction. You say, return ye children of men. In verse 5, you carry them away as with a flood. Verse 7, we are consumed by thy anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. You realize your problem is with God? Your problem isn't with physics, with biology. Your problem's with God. And so if ever there's going to be a solution, it's going to have to come from God. That make sense? Till then, you're just batting your head up against the wall. You're just dealing with the wrong thing. That if my problem, the reason I'm dying is because of God then I better do some business with God. Now, the psalmist didn't know much, but he knew that much. He knew that I can't get out of this. I can't, somehow, I'm caught. My only hope, if there's ever a remedy to my situation, is with God. He needs to acknowledge some things. Number, in verse 14, he says, Satisfy us early with thy mercy. If ever there is a solution, it's not only going to come from God, it's going to come by his mercy. You say, well, I'll do something good enough that God will look at me and say, well, i tell you what, he's so valuable to me, I think I'll keep him around. He's not going to die. I'll give him life. Because look at that. Look at that wonderful thing he did. Do you realize that everything you do under the curse is cursed? Your best work under the curse is contaminated by sin. The best thing you can do. We don't think like that. We compare ourselves one to another and say, well, I'm better than him, I'm better than her. And so surely if I get good enough, you know, God's bound to grade on the curve. As long as I'm better than you, I'm okay. Uh Uh-uh. Let me ask you this. Y'all have eggs, you know, eggs, scrambled eggs, fried eggs for breakfast? Let me take some cow manure and put it in a salt shaker. And tomorrow, instead of sprinkling some salt on your eggs, let's put some cow manure on there. I mean, I mean, let's put a whole pound of cow manure. Would you eat those eggs? Well, how about just a spoonful? What if I take that salt shaker with cow manure and just sprinkle a little on there? Will you eat it? I mean, just a little. 
You say, Brother Mark, you don't understand. What you're talking about is so vile, so unclean. Any, If I know there's a speck of cow manure on those eggs, I'm not touching them. Well, now you're beginning to understand how God thinks. The least sin is infinitely reprehensible in the sight of an infinitely holy God. Your prayers are filthy enough to send you to hell. Your repentance needs repenting of. Your faith is contaminated with unbelief and blasphemy. We need to pray for our prayers. We need to repent of our repentance. In other words, if there's an answer, it's not coming from me. You you see? And the fact that I'm a little bit better than you, that I can jump a little higher on the scale of things, uh uh-uh, that's not the rule. That's not the measure. God demands absolute holiness. And anything less, He will not tolerate and He will not bless. You begin to see that the answer, if there is one, is going to come from Him. And the answer, if there is one, is going to come by His mercy, by His compassion. Verse 15 is going to come by His power. In proportion to the enormity of our sin, God must act, God must work in a way that goes over and beyond whatever my sin does. Does that make sense? Whatever my sin has done, whatever sin has caused in the relationship between me and God, if it's ever going to be fixed, God's going to have to do something to go over and beyond what sin did. Right? He can't just do a little and leave the rest of it. He can't even do just enough. He's got a... But but glory be to God, where sin has abounded, where there's a little bit of grace, (laughs) where sin has abounded, grace abounded to the same degree? No, where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. The power of God has not only undone the effects of the fall, but the power of God has brought a salvation that takes us far beyond what Adam had in the garden. We think that Adam, you know, he had this life with God and so forth, and he lost it, and salvation brings me back up to Adam's level. But that's not true. Adam had life with God, but he didn't have eternal life. He didn't have everlasting life. What God has done for us, I'm sort of thinking in terms of accounting here. Profit and loss. Adam started here, and he lost it. Whatever he had with God, whatever you want to call that, he lost it. He utterly lost it. Here's the measure. Adam was here. He fell down there. When God starts a work of grace with you and me, where does He start? Does He start? Are we here where Adam is? Is that where He starts with us? We are innocent, sinless creatures? No. You realize that when God starts with us, He has to start down there. Because that's where we are as a result of Adam's sin. We're already under the curse. We're constituted sinners. So God starts down there. Then when He saves us, does He just bring us up to where Adam was? With the possibility of falling all over again? No. He raises us far above where Adam put us. Where grace, where sin is abounded. Grace did much more abound. You you see, we know all of that, don't we? From what we see in Jesus Christ. And then verse 16, it will come... Not only by God's mercy, by God's power, it'll come by His works. If ever we're saved, God's going to have to save us. I want you to look at that last verse, verse 17. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. That's an interesting verse. It is one of the few verses in the Bible that gives you great insight into how we're to live as Christians. Is salvation something that I do 
completely on my own apart from God? Do I save myself? Absolutely not. Is salvation something God does, but I don't do anything? Is that true? Now think about it. You say, well, I believe in salvation by grace. I believe in predestination, election. You can believe in all those things, but the Scripture makes it plain. There's some things I'm going to have to do if I'm saved. i got to do something. i got to believe. i got to repent. i got to follow Christ. So on the one hand, I will never be able to save myself apart from God. And on the other hand, not only if I say God must work, that's true, but do I do nothing? Or is it a synergism? Anybody know what synergism means? What does it mean, James? He does his part and I do my part. I don't know how many times I've heard people say that. Well, God does his part and I'll do my part. Is it a cooperation a partnership. No. You say, well, is it 50% me and 50% God? No. The truth is, it's 100% you and 100% God. It is God, as the words here state, establishing the works of your hands. That you are doing and yet you are doing because God is doing. At the very same time that you are working, God is working. It's not a partnership. It is that what you are doing, flowing out of your life, is result of God's work within you. It's not a synergism. It's not a partnership. It's not all you. It's not all God. It's all you and all God as God works in you and through you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Anybody know that verse? What does the next verse say? Work out your own salvation. My Church of Christ roommate loved that verse. Man, did he quote that thing a hundred times to me. No, that's Paul in Acts 17. There it is. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do you will to do His good pleasure? You bet you do. Do you choose to do what He wants you to do? You bet you do. Well, why do you choose His good pleasure? Because it's God who's working in you to will and to do His good pleasure. Oh, tremendous insight here, even from an Old Testament saint, that if there's any hope for me, yes, there's something I must do. But the only way what I do will be effectual, will avail anything, is if what I do is the result of God working in and through me. I did it. I don't know about you, but I came to Christ. Did you come to Christ? I don't know about you, but I chose Jesus. Did you choose Jesus? Anybody here a Christian who didn't choose Jesus? <laughs> didn't come to Jesus? Didn't want Jesus? Did you want Jesus? I did. Well, you say, well, then it's just all you. No. On the one hand, yes, it's 100% me. I 100% wanted Jesus, chose Jesus, came to Jesus. But it's also 100% God. Because it was God working in me to will and to do. Uh, to, notice, to will. I will because He will. He works in me to will to do. And not only to will to do it, to do it. I used to spank my son. He was, he was pretty smart. My oldest daughter, Tanya, had spanked her and she wouldn't dare shed a tear. She wasn't going to give you the satisfaction. Kevin went to screaming the moment you picked up anything. You know, pick up your hand. He goes to screaming ahead of time. He, he caught on real quick. And he would start to screaming, I will, I will, I will. But you quit and he wouldn't. He wouldn't. No. He wouldn't. <laughs> 
There's a lot of folks that will to do God's good pleasure and never get around to doing it. But notice it is God who worketh in you to will and do his good pleasure. Are you saved by works? All depends, doesn't it? Don't be saved through faith. That's something you do. But it's the gift of God. Lest any man should boast. My faith is the result of God's working in and through me. Had he left me alone, I would continue on in unbelief to this day. The fact I do, the fact I believe, is because of a God who first did worked in me and through me. The Old Testament saint, though he didn't know the whole story, he's pretty smart, wasn't he? He picked up on some things. We get the full story in the New Testament when Christ comes, but notice the clues, the clues of the pieces that he was able to assemble in his day shed great light upon this problem. Here's my problem. It's sin. God cannot tolerate it, and I can't quit it. The wages of that sin is death, and if ever there's going to be a remedy, it's going to have to come from God. And it's going to have to come by His mercy and His grace. It's going to have to come according to His power, His might. And yes, I'm going to have to do something but I'm going to do it because God is establishing the works of my hand. Well, it's an interesting psalm. I tell you what, all of these are fascinating, fascinating in, in their own way. Not a one of them's a dud. They all speak to us and speak very strongly. Let's go to prayer.